Well, I'm sometimes asked why we devote so much time to just reading the scriptures together when we gather like this and reading long stretches of scripture like that, which I know can be a challenge because there's not many other places in, the, in our culture and in our context where you are doing that sort of thing with any book or with any selected reading or whatever the case may be. But the reason why we read the scriptures and we devote so much time to the scriptures when we gather in this space on, these, on this particular day of the week is because when Paul is writing to Timothy, there's a moment where he encourages him as he's leading a, a young church in Ephesus. Hey, I want you to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. I want you to give yourself to publicly reading the Scripture so that people can hear the Scriptures being read. There's a lot of people who assume they know what's in the Bible, uh, but when you actually hear what's in the Bible, it's a whole other dynamic. And so we read the Scriptures out loud, publicly, uh, as, a, as, a, as a graceful discipline to devote ourselves to the public reading of God's Word. Then the second, kind of the second-fold answer I give when I'm asked that question is, well, if God wrote a book, don't you want to know what's in it? If God wrote a book, that's a book we're going to want to read, right? That's a book we should want to hear and, and pay attention to. And so we read the scriptures in that way because we do believe that God has given us this book so that we can know who he is. He's given us this book so we can know what he is about, so that everything we say with confidence about Jesus, we draw from the scriptures. We would not know if not for the Bible. So we devote ourselves to reading and studying and exploring the scriptures for those reasons at least. Now, let me invite you to grab your Bibles if you have one and turn them open to Acts chapter 12. And as you're finding your way to the passage that was just read so well for us a moment ago, uh, hang out in verse 1. We'll pick up here in a minute. And, you know, rivalries are everywhere in society. There are rivalries in every facet and area of our culture and our context. Usually when you think about a rivalry, you think sports rivalry, and so you begin to pit the Huskies versus the Cougars, and you begin to think about other uh, sports rivalries that you may be quite familiar with, like the Lakers versus the Celtics, or uh, if you're a baseball fan, a sports rivalry that says, well, it's the Houston Astros against everybody else uh, because of their cheating scandal and some of the things that they've done to make everybody mad now. So there lots of sports rivalries that we're familiar with, but there's also rivalries in the world of food. So if you're living in Seattle and you like pizza, you engage the rivalry between Zeke's and Pagliacci's. Now, uh, the G is silent in Pagliacci's. It's not Pagliacci's, it's Pagliacci's. And so you just use that when you call them up and they'll appreciate you for it. And for my money, I'm going with Pagliacci's because I think they win that rivalry. Uh, then there's also rivalries in technology where you've got Mac versus PC and you have rivalries in the world of, of uh, you know, animals, dogs versus cats, right? And again, dogs win that. But then there's also the, the rivalry of, of every home that has kids, and that's the rivalry of, you know, kids versus vegetables, and who's going to win that battle as, as kids are constantly rivaling against being fed anything green and healthy. And so all these rivalries that are present and everywhere in society, but there's one rivalry I want to call your attention tonight that is pertinent in every single heart that's represented in this room, and it is pertinent in the heart of every person in our city, and you can broaden that out to the world. That there is a rivalry, there is a conflict that cuts right through the core of the human heart. And that's the rivalry between what might be described as the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. Between doing things my way or doing things the way. 
between believing Jesus was telling us the truth when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's believing Jesus and saying, okay, I'm going to go about life the way. I'm going to be in Jesus' way. I'm going to move in his direction or doing life and calling shots according to my way. So you have the rule of self and the rule of God. You have the kingdom of Darkness versus the kingdom of the beloved son. And this conflict, this rivalry, ground zero for it is right there in your heart. As you consider, how are you going to journey through this world? Are you going to live your life according to the rule of self? Or are you going to live your life according to the rulership of God? Now, this rivalry, this conflict between these two kingdoms started at the very beginning of creation when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent to, uh, to do things their way and to turn their back on God's way. And so they sinned against God and everything went south and sideways. And there was a moment where the Lord approached them in Eden and he began to divvy out these consequences. And he spoke to the woman, then he spoke to the man, and then he came to the serpent who we believe to be Satan or the devil. And he tells him, look, now there's going to be a conflict that's not going to end well for you. It's going to be a conflict that will unfold when the seed of the woman crushes the head, crushes your head or crushes the head of the serpent. And the Lord was just laying out this rivalry, this conflict that will unfold all throughout the Bible and all throughout human history until we get to the point when Jesus does just that. And the rule of God ultimately squashes the rule of Satan, the rule of self, the rule of sin, the rule of death. All of that is just done away with. But as you read through the Old Testament, you begin to see this conflict popping up in multiple places. And you begin to see it unfold in, in dramatic ways. And one example would be in the book of Exodus where you have the Pharaoh when he is rivaled against the people of Israel in Egypt. Then you keep going in the story and you have a, a woman named Jezebel who's, who's going after Elijah, the seed of the woman being attacked by the seed or someone who was siding with the kingdom of self or siding with uh, yeah, the rulership of self. Then you keep going into the exile. You have a guy named Nebuchadnezzar who did the same thing when he went after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when he went after Daniel and that crew. And then when you get into the New Testament, you see this conflict and this rivalry unfolding uh, more, uh, and it really kind of happens in all the scenes that involve anybody named Herod. Now, Herod's basically a guy you don't want to name your kids after because his, all the Herods in the Bible, there's not much good that can be said about any of them because they're constantly pitting themselves against the kingdom of God, the rulership of God. It started in, Matthew, in the beginning of the gospel when Herod the Great would uh, basically sent an edict to wipe out all the newborn Hebrew boys because his rule was, in his mind, being threatened by the birth of the Jewish king or the Jewish Messiah or the Jewish ruler. And so he launched a huge campaign to uh, wipe out Hebrew baby boys. Then you have another Herod named Uncle uh, uh, Herod Antipas. Herod would have been one of the sons of Herod the Great. And if you remember what he was famous for, he was famous for killing John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And he killed John the Baptist because John the Baptist stepped up and he said, look, man, you're living according to the rule of self. This is why you're going after all these things that you're going after. You need to come back under the rule of God. And Herod didn't like that. And so he killed John the Baptist. 
And then when you step into Acts chapter 12, we find another Herod. Now, this Herod in this passage isn't Herod the Great. It isn't Herod Antipas. It's a new Herod. It's actually Herod the Great's grandson. And and we're told at the very beginning that he violently attacked the church, that he pitted himself against God's people once again. And then in verse 2, we're told that he executed a guy named James with the sword, which leads us to believe that he beheaded James. And so you have this conflict unfolding in this story, an ancient conflict just being reiterated in this moment, just as this conflict is reiterated time and time and time again throughout throughout human history. But this rivalry and this conflict, when you get to the heart of it, what you're getting after is a rivalry between the kingdom of self, saying, I'm going to do things my way, and the kingdom of God that says, I'm going to do things his way. I'm going to go about the way. And this is the conflict I want you to think about today. This is the rivalry I want you to explore your heart in light of to see kind of where you are in this. Where are the battle lines being drawn in your heart? And how are you moving away from your way towards the way? And so to do that, I want to look at this story and and basically contrast Uh, what might be called as the rule of self, which is most embodied in Herod and all the things that he does and the way he acts in this story. And then when you come to his demise in the end, all of this uh, illustrating for us what goes down when the self is in charge, when the self is ruling. But then we're going to look at Peter's rescue and his the moment when God intervenes and delivers Peter from prison. And And we're going to examine how the rule of God leads to our liberation and our redemption. And we're just going to contrast the two. And I pray that that you would examine your heart in light of what we see. So before we dive in, let me voice one more prayer for us. And then we will do just that. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace over these next few moments to be honest with ourselves about ourselves. And God, would you help us to see what the rule of self looks like and help us to see what your rule looks like. And God, would you help us to find your rule attractive? Would you help us to find your rule desirable so that you would be our God and that we would cease trying to be God and that you would call the shots and that that we would surrender our lives to you in every discernible way? God, we love you and we pray for your help on that front. In Jesus' name, amen. So thinking first about the rule of self, looking at Herod's demise in the story. One thing we can say about King Herod and the way he embodies and personifies kind of self-rule is, is when you begin to explore a little bit about what motivated him in his kingdom, what motivated him in his leadership, what motivated him in his rule and how he went about it. And one of the things that we can say with confidence is that the self rules only to reign. That the self rules only to reign. We see this in Herod's story. Herod loved power. Herod loved glory. Herod loved to be in control. Herod loved to call the shots. And he would change calling the shots, what shots he would call, according to what was most popular amongst the masses. You see, when the self is ruling to reign, that means we're going to be like Herod in the sense that we're moving more towards convenience than conviction. That he led by what 
doing what was convenient for him politically than what was based in any type of anchor of conviction or moral compass or anything along those lines. We see this in the beginning of the story when he violently attacked those who belonged to the church. He executed James. Now, they were told that this is James, John's brother. If you remember from the Gospels, James and John were often pictured together. They were referred to as the sons of thunder. James was a man who had some unique, special moments with Jesus. Peter, James, and John were also given the privilege of being with Jesus in the most intimate and intense moments of his life. So at the Mount of Transfiguration, James was there. In the, Mount of, or in the Garden of Gethsemane, James was there. This is the James we're talking about. It is this James who was loved by Jesus, who was given a lot of privilege by Jesus, who was being used by Jesus. This is the James who lost his head at the hands or at the order of King Herod. Now, in the very next chapter, we're going to meet another James, but we're not talking about this one. It'd be a different James. And kind of like Herod's, there's a bunch of James in the Bible as well. And so the one we're going to meet in the next chapter would be Jesus's half-brother. And Jesus' half-brother, who at one time didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, he didn't want to do things Jesus' way because obviously that was his half-brother and there was probably rivalry there. But eventually he came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he resurrected from the grave. It would take a resurrection for me to treat any one of my siblings like a Messiah. Well, it took that for James too. And so he believed that Jesus had resurrected, this is the Messiah, and he went about and his life began to change. And it's that James that would write the book of James that's located towards the end of the New Testament. But here you have this moment. Whenever, whenever Herod executed James with a sword, he saw that it pleased the Jews. He said, I like how the people are responding to my leadership. So I'm going to do some more of it. So that he arrested Peter during the festival of the unleavened bread. And he threw him in prison. And he assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, to watch over him. Everything that Herod was doing in this moment is what we know to be true about Herod in history as well. That Herod had a tendency to uh, pose for the people that he wanted to please. The masses that were clamoring for his leadership, he would do whatever they wanted. So since this pleased the Jews, let's crush more Christians. A lot of the Jews didn't like Christians because they said that Jesus was the Messiah and they didn't believe that. They thought it was blasphemous. So when he came down hard on them, everybody got happy and so he just continued to turn the screws. But if James uh, Herod was in another situation and he was standing before a Greco-Roman world or if he was interfacing with the Roman government that put him in charge in Judea and Samaria, he would act very Roman. He would turn his back on kind of the Jewish festivals and some of the Jewish celebrations that, that were quite, custom, quite, quite common and celebrated by people like him and the Jewish people. And he would act Greco-Roman with the Greco-Romans and he would act Jewish with the Jews. In other words, Herod was a chameleon. And he changed his, color according, his colors according to whoever he was talking with, according to whoever was applauding him or rallying underneath his rule. But all of it was driven by convenience, not conviction. That's what happens when the self rules. When the self rules, we are moved more by convenience, what is popular, more by convenience, what will gain applause, more by convenience, what will make life easier for us than we are with conviction. When you become a person of conviction, when you become a person with a chest, so to speak, and there is a core conviction about who you are and what you believe life is to be about, suddenly you're going to find yourself being resisted from the world around you because you can't change who you are if you're, move, if you're motivated and moved by convictions. And what we're going to find is that the rule of God, when we come under the rule of God, we're not moved by convenience to do so. 
It's conviction that drives us in our relationship with God. It's conviction that drives us to share the gospel and to show the gospel and to give our lives for the glory of Jesus in the world. But when the self rules, understand that the self rules only to reign and it's going to do whatever's convenient so that it can maintain that. But then Herod also ruled to be served, not to serve. He ruled to be served, not to serve. And the reason why we can say this is because Herod had no plan for the people of Judea. He had no plan for the people of Samaria. That was the two areas that he was in charge of. He wasn't taking them anywhere. He wasn't leading them into the future. He was just seated on the throne because he liked the position of power. He liked the position of glory that that awarded him. He had no plan to lead. He had no purpose to lead. He just cared about being served, not serving the people, which is what a good leader would do. And so his leadership, it seems, he ruled only to reign. He did not rule to do anything productive for the people he was over. Just wanted the position, the glory, and the power. That's how the self is. The self rules only to reign. But then we can also see that the self's rule, if that is true, then the self's rule is going to be fraught with insecurity. The self's rule is fraught with insecurity because the self perceives threats coming at it from every direction. And when the self is perceiving threats coming at it, the self self will buck against those threats. And this is what Herod does. When his rule is being threatened from anyone, he will come down hard on them. So when you get towards the end of the passage, you have this moment where Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And the people were afraid because when Herod gets mad, bad things happen. And so he would oppress people in anger. He would oppress people who might not be conforming to his rule or sitting gladly under his leadership. And so you have this Herod who, whose rule was fraught with insecurity. And when he felt insecure, he would come down hard on people. And the people of Tyre and Sidon knew this, which is why they presented themselves to him. And they had to win over Blastus, who worked for King Herod. And then they asked for peace. They were begging for peace from this oppressive ruler. But not only do you see it in Herod oppressing people because he was insecure, you also see it in verse 21. In verse 21, he has this moment where he's addressing this crowd of people. And we're told that he dressed up in robes and he took his seat on the throne. And after he kind of posed in this powerful way by wearing these robes and taking his seat on the throne, he then delivered a speech. And the people responded in a way that you might understand because obviously they wanted to appease Herod so that he wouldn't mistreat them, so that he wouldn't oppress them. And so it says the people began to shout, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. It's the voice of a God and not of a man. Now this whole scene reminds me of a scene from the first Avengers movie. Uh, the first Avengers movie, there's a, uh, the Black Widow, Natasha. She's making a comment to uh, Captain America, who's getting ready to leap out of a jet to help with this fight that was going on between Loki, who was a god, and Thor, who is a god, and they're fighting, and Captain America is about to jump in the middle of it. And Black Widow says, I- I'd sit this out. I'd sit this one out, Cap. They're basically gods. <laughs> and Captain America responds, there's only one god, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. There's only one God, man, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. I think this is how we should have responded or the people should have responded when Herod posed as a powerful figure in this moment. So the people are praising him. This is the voice of a God, not the voice of a man. 
And he doesn't defer it. He doesn't deflect it. He just takes it all in because he loved power and he loved glory. His response is quite different from Peter's response. You remember Peter was a man who lived under the rule of God. He's the one who's going to experience liberation from the prison cell in a moment. But if you remember previously in Acts chapter 10, he presents himself to a guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius sees Peter and he he interprets Peter as being a significant, special, sacred person. And so Cornelius bows down and begins to worship Peter. And Peter responds. He says, no, 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 stand up. I am a man just like you. That's what humility does. So the rule of God nurtures humility within us, that humility that we've talked about, the humility that says we're going to stand up and look everyone in the eye. We're going to stand up and be shoulder to shoulder with every other human being in the world. We're not going to suffer from an inferiority complex because that's rooted in pride. And we're not going to struggle with a superiority complex because that too is rooted in a form of pride. Instead, we're going to grow in humility that says we're all human and no one is inherently more valuable than any other person. So Peter sees this and he's, he says, look, no, 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 don't, don't bow to me. Don't worship me. Stand up. Look me in the eye because we are both human. That's how Herod should have responded. But again, Herod is moved by the rule of self. He's not living according to the rule of God. And so he's more proud than he is humble. And, and Herod, again, is showing himself as just a poser in that moment. But then when you come to the end of the Herod's story, you find his demise because the self's rule, not only does the self rule to reign, not only is it fraught with insecurity that causes us to, to lash out at any threat that might come up against us, not only does it cause us to want to pose and present ourselves as being bigger than we are or better than we are or more righteous than we are, the self's rule will ultimately expire. And this is the hard lesson from Herod's story. There's a reason why this account was given to us in the scriptures, and it was given to us as a warning to us, saying the self's rule will expire. You can do things your way if you want. If you want to go about doing things your way, you can, but understand there's an expiration date to your rule. There's an expiration date to yourself sitting on the throne of your life. One day that's going to be exposed, and one day things are not going to go well for you. This would, again, be Herod's example. Herod sought to get glory rather than to give it in verse 22. It was the voice of a God and not a man, and, and we're told that he did not give glory to God. And because he sought to get glory rather than to give it, verse 23, he was struck down by God in judgment. He was struck down by God in judgment. Verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Now, there's a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus who talks about this moment, and he was aware of what happened to Herod and kind of the demise that he faced. And he described what went down in his historical writings from this day. He said, he said that a severe pain arose in his belly, that is Herod's belly, which became so violent that he was carried into his palace, where five days later he died. And so he's describing it according to kind of the physiological factors that led to his death. But Luke, who is a doctor, could have described Herod's death that way. He could have described it in physiological terms. But instead, Luke is operating from God's perspective. And so when Herod died, Luke gives us the cue. He gives us the inside information that Herod's death was, was God's judgment upon him for living according to the rule of self. And that's an important dynamic for us to consider because that's the reason this story is in the Bible is to serve as a warning to you and a warning to me. 
The rule of self will expire, and in the end, it will not go well. I was an English major in college, and I remember reading uh, Ernest Hemingway and his story of, of things that unfolded in his life. And, and I'll never forget reading a, a statement that he wrote, or an article that he wrote. And in this article, he said this. He was explaining why biblical morality, he wasn't going to let biblical morality impose itself upon his life. And so he's explaining this in this article, and he writes this. He said, I'm living proof that one can live any way he chooses and succeed. I have fought in revolutions. I have tumbled women. I have satisfied my desires. And I stand as living testimony to the fact that you can sin and get away with it. Hemingway was a man who lived according to the rule of self. He did things his way. But if you know his story, and it's quite striking that 10 years from the moment he wrote those words... Ten years to the day is when he grabbed a shotgun and he took his own life. And the rule of self proved to be incapable of preventing and protecting him from that type of end. The rule of self will expire and the life that he sought, the life that he thought he could bring himself just didn't quite pan out in the end. And that's the dirty little secret of the self-rule philosophy that is so common and popular in our culture. We don't, we're not told that the rule of self will expire. We're not told that the rule of self will one day reach its limits. And when it reaches its limits, things are going to recoil in a destructive direction. This was Herod's example. And we want to heed that warning. But then we want to turn our attention to, to, Luke's exa- or to Peter's example Because we find the rule of God illustrated in Peter's rescue. And if we have to choose between the two, let's go that route. Because listen to what goes down in Peter's rescue. We learn so many things about God's rule. And I know that language, God's rule, just sounds very off-putting to many of us. Because we think that rules and, and authority and leadership, that sounds so restrictive. It sounds so confining. But what I hope to show you as we walk through this this portion of the story, is that God's rule is actually liberating. When God is in charge, that sets you free to live life to the fullest. It sets you free to live life without fear, without guilt, without shame, without debilitating anxiety and worries and stresses. When God's rule is your life, you are finally free to live and to be. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, all illustrated here in Peter's story. So if the rule of self, the self, rules only, the self rules only to reign, when you look at how God leverages his power in Peter's direction in response to the church, we're reminded that God rules to redeem. The reason God rules is to set free. The reason God rules is to buy back. The reason God, rule, God rules is so that you might become the person he originally created and designed you to be. That's what redemption is. That's what restoration is. That's what salvation involves and entails. So when God rules, understand that he's ruling to redeem. He's leveraging his authority. He's leveraging his power. He's leveraging his presence. He's leveraging all of his resources towards the redemption of those he Rules. And so Peter experiences this. God rules to redeem. And what we find in how Peter's responding to his situation is that God is trustworthy, that you can trust his rule, you can trust his leadership. I find this beautiful because Peter's in prison, but he's not sweating. 
Peter's in prison, but he's not, he's not fearful of what's going to happen to him in the future. He knows what just happened to his friend James. James was just beheaded. Peter's, that may very well be in Peter's immediate future. But you don't find Peter pacing in his prison cell. You don't find Peter sweating drops of blood in this moment. Instead, you find Peter living in light of what he knows to be true about Jesus. Jesus was crucified and he was resurrected. James was beheaded. James' head is going to be restored one day. Peter is probably thinking, they may take my life now, but I'll be resurrected in the end. He's letting those realities bring a sense of peace to his soul, which is why I think he's able to go to sleep. It's a very odd thing that when you meet him in this moment, he is sleeping. He's not stressing. His God is trustworthy, even though he is in a prison cell. Now, there are moment, other moments in the book of Acts that we're going to see disciples in prison, worried about their future or thinking about their future. And what's interesting is all of them, this is the type of response they're giving. They're either sleeping or singing. Those are two good things to do when you are in prison and you don't know what's waiting for you in the future. Peter is sleeping because he knows his God is trustworthy. Now, in saying that, Peter doesn't know he's going to be set free from this prison. He doesn't know that his life is going to be spared. He's just trusting God, believing that God is sovereign, believing that God is good, believing that God is wise. And you and I would do well to to learn from Peter in that moment. This is the same Peter who would later write 1 Peter chapter 5, reminding us of perhaps he's thinking about these events of Herod throwing him in prison and of Herod losing his life and then him being set free from prison. Maybe he's thinking about that when he pens, you know, God resists the proud. He opposes those who are committed to self-rule. He resisted Herod, but gives grace to the humble. God showed me grace in my prison cell. I went to sleep. I wasn't fretting. There's a sense of humility in that. So he tells Christians, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. God is sovereign. He is big so that he may exalt you at the proper time. That may happen now. It may happen later. He says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. That was Peter's God, a God who was really, really big, an almighty God, but a God who was very caring, very loving, very attentive to him and to his people. You find God ruling to redeem in the fact that he is trustworthy and the fact that he is attentive. So Peter says, so keep praying, cast your cares to him, trust him. He knows where you are. He sees where you are. He's aware of what you're going through. He's with you, so you can, you can just rest. You can be at ease. You can know this kind of peace. Now the church, when they learn of Peter being thrown in prison, we're told at the end of verse 5 that, that the church began to pray fervently to God for him. So they responded to Herod's oppression with prayer. They were defying Herod's rule by praying to God. They were, they were, they were going around Herod, right? They were saying, okay, there's, you're, you're, you're big, you're in charge, but there's somebody bigger who's more in charge, and that's the one we're going to appeal to while you're trying to press us down and oppress us. So they pray fervently. The word fervent means to stretch or to strain. They are stretching toward heaven, engaging in defiant opposition of Herod's rule and of self-rule. You know, anytime you are praying, you are protesting the rule of self. That's what prayer is at its basic definition. When you pray, you are saying, I am not in charge. When you pray, you're saying, I cannot handle this thing called life. When you pray, you are protesting self-rule and you are submitting to God's rule. This is what the church is doing. 
And they are praying to a God whose rule is secure. I love this dynamic. Not only does God rule to redeem, God, God's rule is secure. It is stable. It is fixed. And the way we find this is, I think, in how this story is told. That the God being prayed to and the God who is orchestrating these events is a God who's very joyful. Because he is secure in his rule, he's not threatened by Herod. He's not threatened by anyone. He's free to be joyful. He's free to be glad in being God. Now, to see this, you got to think about the story and the way Luke gives it to us. You have two scenes. You have Herod persecuting the church, and then you have Herod's corpse being eaten by worms. And right in the middle of it, you have this humorous, funny story of how Peter is set free from prison. There's so much humor in it. It's like God is playing with what's happening. He's joyful in delivering his people. He's joyful in responding to their prayers and liberating Peter, even though it seems as though all hell is breaking loose around them. God is secure in his rule, and he's quite joyful. Let me show you some of the, some of the humorous elements of the story. Verse 8, when the angel of the Lord shows up, and he strikes Peter. That's actually the same word used when Herod is struck at the end. Only this strike doesn't kill Peter. It serves his liberation. The angel Lord kind of strikes him, pops him on the head, and, and he wakes up. And the angel says, quick, get up. And the chains just fell off his wrist. And then the angel has to tell Peter to get dressed. Now, I don't know if Peter was sleeping in the buff or what. But angel has to tell him to get dressed. Put your clothes on. Peter might not have remembered that that was something he needed to do because he was so swept up in the moment. In verse 9, we're told that Peter thought he was seeing a vision. He didn't know what to make of what was going on. He was half asleep, half awake, not sure what's going on. But eventually, he follows the, angel, the angel's lead to or outside, and then he goes to the house of Mary as a, as a newly freed man. When he shows up at the house of Mary, he begins to knock at the door of the outer gate in verse 13. And a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, verse 14. She recognized Peter's voice. She had heard him talk before. She knew his voice. And because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. So Peter had just been set free from prison. The officials are probably looking for him in the city. And Rhoda is so dense in this moment, not sure how to make of all these happenings, that when she sees Peter outside, she just turns and runs back inside without letting Peter in. Now, it's quite humorous that she would go in and tell everybody, hey, Peter's here, Peter's here. And everybody's like, you're, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. But turns out she was right. She just forgot to bring Peter in through the gate. And so Peter's probably thinking, you know, as he's knocking, he's about to be let in. And then the girl turns and runs, and he's stuck outside. Now, what I really love about this is that when he was set out, when he was set free from prison, we're told that the iron gates that were locking him in, that they opened by themselves. That God opened the gate so that Peter could walk out. Now, I think it's funny that God left this gate closed outside of Mary's house. God could have opened that gate just as he did the prison cell, but he chose not to. And he's probably laughing at Peter just standing outside while all this commotion is going on in the house. As God is moving in this quite humorous way, which usually when God is working, or not usually, there are times when God is working in ways that should make us laugh. And he's doing things that should cause us to smile because we're just unexpecting the ways that God is moving. And we're not expecting the ways in which God is coming through for his people. And he does it in these surprising, funny, joyful kinds of ways. And he does this again because he is a joyful God. 
secure in his rule. If he was insecure, he would be angry like Herod all the time. But God is not insecure in his rule. He is joyful. He is he's composed. It's a great word for God. God is composed. He never flies off the handle like Herod. He never oppresses people unjustly like Herod. He never does these things because he's a joyful God who's secure in his rule. And not only is he joyful, he's powerful. You see his power at work on Peter's behalf in the story where things are just happening. His chains are falling off. He didn't have to work to get them off his wrists. The gate opens by itself, which is the same language used to describe what happened to the stone in front of Jesus' tomb. The stone that was moved out of the way. The same power of the, that resurrected Jesus is at work in liberating Peter from prison. There's a lot of joy to be had in that. There's a lot of rest to be had in this type of rule of God that he would leverage the power of resurrection to liberate us and to work within us and to do things for us. And then the last dynamic of God's rule that I want you to think about is that God's rule is eternal. If the rule of self has an expiration date, God's rule doesn't. God's rule is eternal. You see this when you keep reading into the end of the story and you get the moment where, again, Herod dresses up in robes. He seats, sits in the throne and he gives a speech. And the people begin to shout, it's the voice of a God and not of man. And then the Lord strikes him down dead and he's eaten by worms. But then in verse 24, what happens? Herod dies. But the word of God continues, right? God's rule is eternal. Verse 24, but the word of God flourished and multiplied. It continued to move throughout the city and throughout the region. The rule of self could not stop the rule of God in the end. As God's word is is moving. It is moving in a way that will show it resounding forever and ever and ever. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8, we're told that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. You are only as secure as what you're ruled by. If the rule of self is the defining narrative of your life, you are going to live a very insecure, unstable life. You are constantly going to be under threat. Your joy is constantly going to be taken from you because it's too vulnerable in that situation. When you live your life under the rule of God, that's when you find yourself stable That's when you find yourself secure. That's when you find yourself free. Why? Well, it's because the word of God is the one that's going to last forever. The speeches you give to yourself that are devoid of gospel truth and that are devoid of gospel realities. If you continue to give yourself speeches and you let yourself speak over and over and over again, defining your value, defining your worth, saying you can't shake this, you can't overcome that, you're going to live your life constantly under threat in an insecure, unstable, joyless, ultimate kind of way. But when self-speech gives way to God's speech, and we begin to listen to what God has to say about us to us, we can rest assured that what he says about us to us, that's the speech that's going to last forever. That's what we want to rule us as we journey through this world. 
So when God looks at us and says, hey, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, let that word prevail in your heart. Let that word rule your life. When God says, look, I have forgiven you of all of your sins, past, present, and future, let that word rule in your heart. Let that word rule in your mind because that's the word that's going to last forever. If you're living according to self-rule, then all the lies you believe about yourself are going to dominate you to the very end. And they are going to cut you off from contentment, joy, stability, freedom. But when you come underneath the rule of God and you allow his word to speak into your life and to give shape to your self-understanding and to give shape to your knowledge of who God is and what God is about, that's the word that can set you free. That's the word that can shake the chains loose from your wrists. That's the word that can open up iron gates so that you might walk in freedom and become the man and the woman that God created and is ultimately redeeming you to be. Herod dies after giving a speech, but the word of God continued to flourish and to multiply. It's It's God's word that will resound forever, so it's his word that we want to be shaped by now. Jesus said as much in the Gospels when he gives a parable about the word. And he said, imagine you have two lives and one person builds their life on sand. And they build, their, their, they build a house on sand. And then the storms come and everything begins to threaten them and, and come at them. Eventually the homes crumble and they fall because they're built upon a, a terrible foundation. But then Jesus says, but imagine someone has built his or her life on a rock. Same house, same construction, but has a different foundation. When the storms come and the threats begin to to raise up against them and you find the house stable, you find the house secure, and Jesus would go on to say, you know, it's a wise man who does that. It's a wise person to listen to the warning provided to us in Herod's example. And it is a wise person who listens to what happens in Peter's life in this story and said, okay, I'm not going to live my life according to self-rule. Because the self will expire. I'm going to live my life according to God's rule because God's rule is eternal and his word is the word that's going to last forever. You are only secure and you are only as stable as what rules your life. And so give room, give primacy to God's word in you and to God's word for you and what God says about you. Pay attention to the gospel. Pay attention to All that Jesus lived for, died for, and rose from the grave to provide, when that happens, you will begin to flourish forever. As God's word will resound forever, his people will flourish forever. Those who are under his rule will not perish. They will enjoy eternal life forever and always. That's why I encourage you to give yourself to the rule of God. Understand that he rules to redeem. Anything that God tells you not to do, it's for your good. Anything God tells you to do, it is for your good. He rules to redeem so that you can become the man and the woman he created you to be. God's rule is secure. He's not threatened by the rule of self in the world. In the end, he's going to win. And God's rule is eternal. It's what lasts. And so let's not waste our lives living according to the rule of self. Let's not spin our wills into the into a grave, listening to ourselves and, and really posing 
just posing as though we are capable in and of ourselves to, to control this thing called life and to achieve this thing called life and to bring about whatever definition of life that we're holding on to right now. Let's don't give ourselves to pageantry and don't give ourselves to posing like Herod. Let's give ourselves to just being humble and at rest and at peace like Peter when God begins to work in his liberation. Just imagine Peter standing up and walking out of the prison. It reminds me a lot of what happened in the book of Exodus when when Pharaoh was coming at God's people and God's people were being brought out of Egypt and they get to the point where they come to the Red Sea and there is no way for them to go and, and the Egyptians are on their back and they're coming to destroy them and to re-seize them, bring them back into slavery. There's nothing that can happen. All they do is stand there and wait and then Moses steps out and he drops the staff into the water and then the water separates and suddenly God makes a way when there was no way and the only thing the people had to do in that moment for their freedom was walk. That's all they had to do. They had to walk across the dry land. Now, I'm sure some of them strutted across because they were excited. Others probably stumbled across because they were fearful. I don't know if these waters are going to hold. What if, what if God lets them go too early? And it doesn't really matter how they walked across. The, what mattered is walking across. So whether you feel in your faith like you're strutting or you feel in your faith like you were stumbling... Understand that grace is the same in both, both, both variables. That grace is grace, whether you are strong in faith or whether you are weak in faith. But I encourage you, whatever it is, walk by faith. Repent of the rule of self and trust in the rule of God and believe that he rules to redeem. Believe that he rules securely and believe that he rules forever and always. So you're encouraged tonight to, to walk by faith, not by sight. When we walk by sight, we're living according to the rule of self. When we walk by faith, we're living according to the rule of God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, you cannot live according to the rule of God. So live by faith. Trust in God. Know that he is attentive. Know that he is a glad and a good and a joyful God. Know that he is powerful enough to set you free from anything that's been holding you back and oppressing you all your days. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you move among us in a way that would cause us to experience these realities? Pray, God, that you would help our faith to grow in your direction so that we would surrender to your rule that we would repent of self-rule, that we would say we're not going to go about things our way, we're going to go about things the way, and we're going to give our lives to Jesus who gave his life for us. We're going to give our lives to Jesus who resurrected from the grave so that we might resurrect one day from ours. And so, God, I pray that the hope that that gives us, I pray that that hope would give shape to our lives and we would live out that word day in and day out. God, we love you and we trust you as a good God and we pray that you would have your rule, that you would have your way within our lives all the days of our lives. God, we ask and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.